0: Okay, so this morning we are still in Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 50. I'll I'll read them for us and then we will pray and we will open the word. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us into your courts, into your throne room, to the very throne of grace where Christ sits. We pray, God, as we open your word today, that you would open our hearts and minds to comprehend it, that you would give us a deep understanding and an even deeper love for the the one who stood for us, the one who stood when everyone else fled, the only honest man, the only good man, the only courageous and determined man, was handed over, and he was handed over for us. We pray, God, that we would come to really and truly and fully understand what that means and that it would shape our hearts and our minds and our affections. We thank you and we praise you, and amen. Now, I mean, it's no surprise to most of us that we live in extraordinarily dangerous times. Dangerous times for women, dangerous times for their babies in the womb. We live in a dangerous time, times for marriage and for family and for biblical standards. We live in dangerous times for science and reason. I don't know if you saw it, but my favorite congresswoman, AOC, <laughs> recently tweeted she could not believe that they put the vice president in charge of uh, the coronavirus scare because he doesn't believe in science. Uh, Ted Cruz very quickly retweeted and said, OK, what, what you, you, he doesn't believe in science. Do you believe in science? What's a Y chromosome? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, Ted Cruz, I was, I was, I've never been a bigger Ted Cruz fan. But it's true, we live in, in a time that's very dangerous for, for reason, for common sense, for science, regardless of how much they worship science. The last few presidential campaigns, the instability of globalism as a sustainable political philosophy, they've been trying it for 30 years, so it's not working. Now, most recently, the coronavirus. These are all examples that we live in times of great fear, where people are all too willing to hide, to run, to flee. John Calvin said, The more outspoken a person is in his contempt of God, the more startled he will be by the sound of leaves falling from a tree. That's good. And we live in times defined by cultural contempt for God. Indeed, the melting of ice causes catastrophic pessimism and fanatic frenzy, doesn't it? Drip, drip, drip goes to the ice caps. And you can just hear the hysteria rising faster and higher than the temperature. And so the question is, where are the valiant? Where are the strong? Where are the determined? Where are the courageous? Where are the valiant? Now, valiant is not a word that we are common commonly using these days. It's a very old word. It's a, it's a compound virtue, really. Because to be valiant means to not just be courageous, but to be determined. It's both. A courageous, determined person is a valiant person. Jesus was a determined person. This we have come to know. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. He was so determined to go to Jerusalem. He was so determined to get there that it frightened the people that followed him. He was frightening in his determination. Right? If our wives and our kids could only be frightened by our determination. <laughs> his determination was so intense it frightened his friends and his followers Valiant people are courageous despite their fears and determined at all costs to obey regardless of the dangerous circumstances that surround them. The valiant are also courageous. C.S. Lewis is helpful here because he defines, defines courage as not simply one of the virtues, but the form every virtue, the form of every virtue at the testing point. Right? We tend to think of courage as a virtue. It's not. It, it, courage is the form of every virtue at the testing point which means at the point of highest reality. Courage is the testing of virtue, and we have seen Jesus' virtue tested time and time again. He stood up to Satan's temptations in the desert valiantly. He stood up valiantly to demons, legions of demons, and legions of rabbis and scribes and lawyers. Jesus touched lepers without fear. How? Who can touch a leper and not get leprosy? And yet he did it. He was not afraid of the leprosy. Jesus slept through storms that he then quieted with a word. He was so valiant that a storm in a little boat out on the water, far from land, it didn't frighten him. He slept. He slept comfortably. They had to wake him up. And then what did he do? He looked at the storm and said, be quiet. And it was quiet. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and brigands, and he did not fear what a single person thought of him, ever. But now... Now, the hour he did not want to have come into his life, the hour that he was attempting to avoid, he said when we last saw him, the hour has come. And so is he going to remain valiant? What will he do once Judas, his one-time follower and friend, leads armed guards from the temple against him at night? Now that the hour he sought to avoid has arrived, will Jesus die as consistently as he lived? Will he respond in defeat as he had in victory? Will Jesus remain valiant to the end? Abraham's faith and righteousness and his fear of God were manifest in his willingness to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, in obedience to God. Now, how will Christ fare once he must sacrifice himself? He, he will be the one that allows the light of the world to be snuffed out by children of darkness. He's going to allow it. The transition here is very typical of Mark. This is, in fact, the action movie gospel. This is the good news of the swashbuckling king. That's why Mark, I love it so much. Right? He goes, he's out in the, in the garden. His friends cannot stay awake. His friends cannot watch his back. His friends cannot um, stay up and pray with him. And what is he doing all the while? Sweating blood. And does he have even a moment to take a drink of water? Does anybody give him a towel and wipe off his face? No, he says, here, they've come, and then our story today, boom, they're there. There's no pause, there's no break. Because Mark wants you to understand that the God that you believe in doesn't take a break. The God that you believe in, the God who you need, the God that we all need so badly, doesn't rest. This is the swashbuckling king. This is the greater David. But what is he going to do once his mighty men flee? Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Judas knew where Jesus would be. He knew exactly where he would be. And Jesus knew exactly where he needed to be in, in order to fulfill the will of his father and accomplish his mission in the hour assigned. This is amazing to me. Again, I've said it before. He could have gone anywhere. He could have hid anywhere. But he is a valiant man. He is determined. And he is courageous. And he is going to take on whatever the Father brings. The group conspiring against Jesus in the first few verses back at the beginning of Mark 14, they have seen their plans through. The Father has also seen his plans through, as Jesus says. This is what has been written. This is what was arranged, and this is what was foretold. Jesus has been telling his disciples since chapter 8, this is what's going to happen. They are going to turn me over to wicked and vile men. Everyone is obedient as they fulfill their part, directed from heaven. Nothing is out of the Father's control. This is what's so, <laughs> here's Jesus in the worst circumstances any human being has ever been in, and time and time again we're reminded this is exactly what was written. This is the script. This is the story. There is no other way. Now the clubs that these men carried were meant for rioters, like riot police batons. Have you ever seen those? My dad was a um, policeman and I always loved it when there was a um, some sort of out-of-control crowd downtown because then my dad would put on this cool helmet and this shield that was the size of him, and this stick that was huge. He looked like Donatello from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was amazing. And, and this stick was huge. And he would sometimes swing it like a baseball bat if he needed to. It was a crowd-control weapon, less-than-lethal crowd-control weapon. And th- this story, I just, for me, this is always what I imagined, is a bunch of riot police walking up the hill of Gethsemane to come and get Jesus. But this is why they carry the clubs. Remember, we've said time and time again, Galileans are known for getting a little rowdy. Right? It doesn't take much to set them off. It doesn't take much for them to start rolling cars over and burning things down and taking on the authorities. And so they not only have men with clubs, right a less than lethal way of putting down a mob, because right once you whack somebody in the head with a big stick, they pretty much, they're done rioting. They also have soldiers. They have soldiers. They are willing to put people down. They aren't willing to just break up the mob. They are willing to slaughter these people if they need to. This is how badly they want to get at Jesus. Judas shows that he clearly doesn't understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Think, all this time that he's been with him, all the things that he's seen, all the things that he has participated in, and Judas thinks, right, he's been told time and time again, Jesus says, I'm going up there and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be turned over. And Judas has heard this, but Judas still thinks he needs an army to do it. He doesn't know Jesus at all. He does not understand Jesus. Because, right, Judas could have just gone up there all by himself and said, okay, now it's time, and Jesus would have said, okay, it is time. This is the hour. Let's go. But look at, I mean, just being with Jesus, just participating in his ministry with him, eating with him, hearing him, that isn't enough. It isn't enough for Judas Because Judas does not know Jesus or the kingdom that he is bringing into this world or how he's going to bring it into this kingdom. There's something something more than just proximity, something more than just repetitive listening to Jesus is necessary in order for people to clearly and truly understand who he is and what he's doing. We see it already. Why does Judas not get it? Does he need a legion of soldiers? Mark chapter 14, verses 44 through 45. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They needed a prearranged signal. It's dark outside and there are a lot of people milling around. They don't want to get the wrong guy. In fact, it's very interesting. They show no interest in arresting anyone else. They don't want anybody else. They just want Jesus and they want to make sure that they get Jesus. And so they come up with a sign ahead of time so that Judas can show them very clearly who it is that they want. Who cares about Peter? Who cares about John? Who cares about the rich young guy with, with his uh, linen cloth? They don't care about that. They want to make sure they get Jesus. Jesus is the point. It was a biblical idea proven again and again and again and again with upstarts and with brigands. If you strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. You don't have to worry about them. If you just take care of Jesus it will take care of the problem. Now, what's fascinating here is the word translated as kiss in verse 44 is "filio," But the word translated in verse 45 is an intensive form of that same word. Kataphilio. So the words for kiss aren't the same words in Greek. It's "filio" and kataphilio. Now, the Greek lexicon defines this word kataphilio as to kiss fervently or affectionately. Now, I know, guys, I love my buddies, but I would never kiss any of you passionately or fervently. Byron's friend was just in town and made us all a little uncomfortable because they, they kissed affectionately. But, I mean, once you, you know, once you work in a mine with somebody, I think, like my dad, like he, you know, he will occasionally see an old partner, and, I, and it's like I, my dad hardly kisses me, but he'll kiss that guy, right? I mean, once you go through a certain level of fear and turmoil, so for me, there's always just a little bit of cultural eh, to this whole scene. <laughs> because I'd be like, okay, guys, the one I walk up to and shake his hand vigorously, that's the guy, get him. <laughs> right? Cult- cultures are so weird. I mean, this is, this is apparently not a problem, that Judas is going to walk up and kiss Jesus, right? In our day, we'd be like, whoa, homo. Like, right? We'd, make it a, we'd go in a totally different direction. But, but for these men, they have no problem. Right, Judas walking up, he's spent all this time with Jesus, and to give him an affectionate and passionate kiss, hopefully not on the mouth, I don't actually know, right? but, but this is weird for nobody. It's not strange in any way. Now, this word is one that we've seen, we see used in other parts of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, after Paul's distressing farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, in which he tells them, you will never see me in this world again these men that he lived with for many years, he, he gives them one last rah-rah speech, and at the end of it, everyone is weeping, everyone is crying, and it says that they, they hold on to him and hug him and embrace him and weep upon him and kiss him. And that's the word that is used here, cataphilio, because their passionate love for Paul and, and, and this understanding that they they will not see him this side of heaven again. That is how this word is used. People who love one another, people who, who respect one another, people who are in, a, in the same family, the same mission, the same, right? Are, there's unity and oneness here. And this is how they define the kiss that Judas gives Jesus. That alone is shocking. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it is a kiss of horror, it is hypocrisy with a vengeance. Judas callously prostitutes one of humanity's most sacred symbols of love. He doesn't just say, I will go up and hug him. He comes and he makes it, right? This word means he makes this giant show out of the love that he has for Jesus. Now, Exodus twenty-three nineteen says, do not boil a kid, which is a baby goat, in its mother's milk. And this biblical principle is that you don't use the means of life for death. Judas is using a sign of love and of life as a sign of death and destruction. And, and it is a great evil. It is grotesque in every, simple, in, in every sense of the word. It is a grotesque and horrid thing that he is doing here. Judas' lips are literally as near to Christ as intimacy allows to men, and yet his heart is as far from God as any person's heart has ever been or ever will be, I firmly believe. It's a horrid thing that he's doing. So what is Jesus' response? How does he react to this? Unfortunately, we have to go to Matthew, right? I like to keep in Mark, but for this, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. What is it that Jesus says to him? Friend, do what you came to do. Friend, do what you came to do to do why friend Jesus calls Judas in this moment of all moments friend the scandalous reality about Jesus is that he is the friend of sinners how else could he be your friend how else could he be my friend how else could he be any man's friend Jesus loves his enemies if you've ever wondered what exactly does it mean that Jesus loves his enemies here you go the man is, right, Judas comes to him with the signs of love and life and uses them as signs of death and destruction. And Jesus' only response is, friend, do what you came to do. He's encouraging him. Jesus honors the friendship, even after Judas shows how unworthy of it he is. Jesus maintains the friendship, even when Judas has not. The courage and the nobility in this, the valiant approach that Jesus takes to this whole scene is remarkable. How many, of, how many of us keep honoring our friends and the friendship long after they've proven they are unworthy of it? How different from you and I who feel entitled to our elitism, our bitterness, and our hatred for people? How different Jesus is from those who unfriend people for their political views? And by unfriend, I mean on Facebook, right? How dare you be a liberal how dare you be a progressive? How dare you be a conservative? Oh, my gosh, you like the 49ers. <laughs> we distance ourselves from people over the lowest grade offenses, right? Think, think back in your own life because we have all been there where we thought, man, that guy, that's enough of that. And then somebody later asks, like, well, what happened? You're kind of like, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't even remember. Has that ever happened to you? That happened to me at my 20th anniversary. Somebody mentioned a friend that I used to have. And somebody said, oh, it seemed like you guys were going to be friends forever. What happened? And I was like, you know, I can't, I can't remember. I can't even remember what happened. Because, right, here is Judas turning Jesus over with the signs of love and affection. And we unfriend people so fast, we throw them so far, that we can hardly sometimes even remember why we're not friends anymore. We have so little love for the people in our lives who are close to us, let alone people like Judas, right? Because none of us have had to experience a person quite like Judas in our lives. We justify, our uh, right, out of self-respect, out of appeals that we, of course, would never, ever, ever speak to a person that way. I've got rights, right? I I have to have my self-respect. I can't be having people like this around who are going to belittle me. Our contempt for offenders is remarkable. We justify ourselves with a high-minded self-respect. We live in what they are now, they're, they're calling it this, cancel culture. Right? Somebody does something we don't like, and so we cancel it. We cancel the show, we cancel uh, <laughs> Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck can't get a, he's got to make his own movies now. Because the cancel culture that we live in, this weird thing that we do now where it doesn't take much to offend everybody's sensibilities, and suddenly somebody is on, who was on the inside and outside, now, nah, don't feel bad for Ben Affleck. He's just an example. <laughs> He's a grotesque man. They call him not Batman, but Buttman. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But he, he got chucked out of Hollywood. right? Mel Gibson can't get anyone to answer the phone. This is the culture that we live in. But it's not just celebrities, is it? Right? You've got a sibling... You've got a family member. You've got a friend. You've got a neighbor. Yeah, you used to talk to you, and now you don't. What was the thing, right? Do they walk up to your barbecue in the middle of all of your friends and give you the the kiss of death, like Judas gave to Jesus? Was that the thing? No. Do you want to be Christ-like? You want to do it? Here you go. This is all it takes. Befriend your worst enemy. <laughs> Befriend them, right? Well. In a lower level, you want to be like Jesus Christ. Keep the friends you've got. And don't throw them over for any tiny little thing. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Right? Do you want a standard for how to love people? Even people who don't deserve it. Even people who are as far from deserving it as possible. You were loved by a God and you did not deserve that love. He forgave the inexcusable in you. Likewise, forgive the inexcusable in others. Now, Mark chapter 14, verses 46 through 49. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The armed soldiers and police arresting Jesus don't comprehend the nature of Christ's warfare or the nature of His kingdom, and neither do His followers. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but we know who this character is with the sword. It's Peter. It's Peter. And right, Peter, who fell asleep, who slept through the time where Jesus was praying in the garden. He said, "Stay, watch with me, pray with me, guard me, help me." And what did Peter do during that time? He slept. And so now here it is. It's time for Jesus to go like he's been saying since chapter 8. Hello, Peter. Wake up. And here Peter is whipping out a sword trying to prevent Jesus from this hour. Your time for preventing it, your time to help him has come and it has gone, Peter. Right? And he does not know what kind of king. He's, He's as clueless as Judas. And this is what we have to wrap our minds around. Judas and Peter are as equally clueless about what's going on. And what I love about this story is that a Roman short sword, which is what he would have had, is, is for stabbing and thrusting, not swinging. Right? I mean, he's standing there, the guy's unarmed, and you cut his ear off? That, that actually seems kind of even hard to do. Like, but this sword's for this, Peter. Like, you don't even, you don't, don't do this motion, you do this motion. And he doesn't even know, and so, right? He doesn't know what the sword is for. He doesn't know what the hour is. He clearly is a buffoon who does not know what he's doing. But to put him over here in this category and Judas over there in that category is wrong. The people that were following Jesus, there's this proximity, this closeness, this nearness to him. All this time they spent with him is clearly amounting to what? Not a deep understanding. They are they are determined in the wrong direction. Peter said, I will die for you. Now look at all these men with swords. Now I will live up to what I said I will do. And Jesus says, hey man, you missed your opportunity because the sword of the Spirit in prayer was, what I, was when I needed you. I don't need you now. John Calvin wrote how easy it is to be out of step with Christ when we think we are serving him and defending him. Chopping ears off on Facebook seems to be a spiritual gift for so many these days. These days, how often might you be vehemently defending Jesus but are actually opposing him? wielding the sword of the word badly, (laughs) right? The sword of the word, right? Philippians is for this, not this motion, right? (laughs) He calls the word a sword, and how often are we slashing when we should be thrusting? We attack with the weapons of this world instead of the sword of the spirit in prayer. How often do we think we're defending someone who doesn't need our defense when in, in reality we are opposing him? John Calvin, again, this is a John Calvin Rich sermon. Those who are forced by restlessness or excessive worry to put out their hands to forbidden measures against trouble are certainly renouncing the providence of God. (coughs) Pardon me. Let me read that again. Don't worry, I don't have coronavirus. I have Guinness virus. Thank you. You got that. Those who are forced by restlessness or excessive worry to put out their hands to forbidden measures against trouble are certainly renouncing the providence of God. There are things that we are trying to do to control our circumstances like Covey was talking about this morning, and what we end up doing is the the very opposite of obedience, which is attempting to thwart the, the word of God, the will of God. Maybe that atheist cousin on Facebook is there so that you can fulfill the Great Commission and not score cheap points with people who already agree with you. Maybe the point isn't, right, of that brother-in-law at the Thanksgiving dinner, maybe the point is not for you to appear like a spiritual warrior suddenly in front of all of your Christian family members. Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. He doesn't. He never, ever does. This is not all of that we serve, right? Let the lion out of the cage is what I always say. Don't get in and don't get in his way. Let the lion out of the cage. You want, right, get on your knees and pray that God would descend on the person, that he would come by the power of his spirit. Let the lion out of the cage and get out of the way. He doesn't need you to defend him. May the Lord teach us to seek his warfare his way, loving those who have wronged us, seeing him at work in the circumstances and people around us. Now, the soldiers have come out at night to arrest one who spoke every day in public, and they could have taken him at any time they wanted. Why? Why are these men coming at night? Why are they coming in dark? Why are they coming in great numbers? And it's because they are afraid. Their leaders are afraid, and so they are acting out of fear. Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Because the people is the source of their power. The people is the source of their wealth. The people is the source of their control because when the people are following the way of Moses, they're in control. So the last thing they want to do is go and arrest Jesus in the middle of the day and set off the crowds. Remember, it's Galileans. They're a wild bunch. They don't want that. They're afraid of that because they don't want to unsettle their, right, their primary voting block. They need those people. And so they come at night. These men are afraid. And here's Jesus standing there, and they've got clubs, and they've got swords. What are they afraid of? They go by night so that their deeds are not seen. Chapter or John chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These men are not carrying out their work, their works on behalf of the temple for God. They're not doing it, because otherwise they would have done it by day when Jesus was there, and everyone could have seen him arrested properly. Because even in these days, it's not unlike ours. You can't just walk up and arrest somebody. You, right? We learn later in Acts, they give Paul, or Saul, they give him writs, Right of arrest. They, they write notes for him. He now has the authority to go out and because you can't just go around laying hands on people and, and kidnapping them. So this arrest that they're doing here is not the way that they normally would go about arresting a brigand. The whole thing is done under the cover of darkness because they are afraid of him and because what they are doing they know to be evil and wicked. Jesus is surrounded by criminals and cowards, wimps and whelps, all of them who do their business in the dark and by the sword. Many were shocked by the company that Jesus kept. He hung out with sinners and criminals. The religious people always pointed and jeered at him. Look at the people you're hanging out with. Look at the people you're hanging out with. Cutthroats and tax collectors and whores and violent men. He's surrounded by them. And they're not just the people who have come to arrest them. They're the people who are standing behind him who are following him. Where are the valiant? Where are they? Jesus is surrounded by losers. Jesus is surrounded by false men, by cowards. Jesus found cowards and broken and worthless men everywhere he went. They were his disciples. They were his table fellows and his followers as much as they were his enemies. Because he gathered his circle from among men. And what are men? Are men valiant? Are we strong by nature? Are we determined? Where are the valiant? Right? We live in a dangerous age. How do we stand up when everybody else runs away like Jesus did? How do we take on the armed guards coming down from the temple like Jesus did? How do we remain when everyone else leaves? Because I'll, I'll be honest, I was not born a conservative pastor, but I am one now, and I'm looking around, and it feels awful lonely. Right, and if, and the few of us get together. And you know what it feels like? It feels awful lonely, especially in Seattle, because I mean we're like the minority minority here. Somebody, I, somebody came to town here visiting, and they were somewhat shocked that I, I said, like, "Yeah, I mean, in the in the North Shore here, I think I know all the conservative pastors. I know all of them. I've met them at least. I know their names." They're like, "How is that even possible? This area is huge." I was like, "Yeah." Right, but then. Right? So often I look around and say, where are the valiant? As I'm like sneaking out the back door. (laughs) Yeah, where are the valiant? Go get them, guys. (laughs) Jerry? (laughs) Mark chapter 14, verses 50 through 52. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him, and, and with nothing on, but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> it's just such a weird thing to put in. Now, Mark, aware of how out of keeping Peter's behavior was, didn't identify him as one of Jesus' followers. He simply said one of the bystanders, right? Peter is such a loser that he's not, not even a disciple or a follower. At this point, he's just a bystander. That's hilarious. Like, I didn't even think about that until a commentary pointed out, and I was like, that is funny right there. He's, de- right? He's degraded himself to just being like an eyewitness bystander, just some guy that happens to be in the crowd. In similar fashion, in verse 50, Mark describes the disciples running away, but doesn't call them disciples. He just says they all left him and fled. They are not behaving as disciples of Jesus Christ ought to, and so Mark refuses to honor them with the title of disciple. They are no longer his disciples. This is important for us to understand. They are not his followers any longer. They have fled. Tradition holds that the young man fleeing naked was Mark himself. And now this is very interesting. Now, I also have to point out that I can prove, like, beyond a reasonable doubt, nothing of what I'm about to say on this point. (laughs) Tradition is held at its mark. I like, I, I, it makes sense. I, I like things that make the most sense, right? They, they clarify as many verses as possible. Uh, we can't in any way, shape, or form prove that this was Mark. But the other gospel stories don't mention this incident at all, and that alone is an interesting fact. Why would Mark put this story in here? Especially if he was the rich young ruler who was told to leave everything, right? When he, by the time he finally leaves everything, It's not to follow Jesus. It's to run away. So that alone is funny. I think that's funny all by itself. But Mark is known to have been a resident of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, he owns a home there. It is uh, his house, actually, in which tradition holds that Jesus celebrated the Paschal meal. He was already familiar with Jesus. This is why they had the prearranged signal. Remember? The man with the water jar, follow him, talk to the homeowner. The homeowner would have been Mark's father. If the young man was indeed John Mark, his anonymity here is perfectly explicable. If he left his home quickly, it explains why he didn't wear the usual woolen undergarments that most people did. Right? If he, they have a meal, oh, Jesus is going out to camp in the woods, I want to go with him, and so what he does is he just grabs a linen cloth and throws it on like a big robe, and he doesn't have the usual clothes on underneath. The other thing is linen is very expensive for a couple of reasons. One of them is that it's very hard to dye it which means poor working class people don't wear it. Because if you're wearing white all the time and you work in the fields, that's not going to work. So rich people wore linen. And if Mark is the rich young ruler, you see a logical connection here. Only the wealthy wore it. It was conveniently at hand to throw on and go out in haste for the rich young ruler who has yet to give up all he owns. Right? He still has the linen. He hasn't yet given it up. It might, it is true, be any other youth and not Mark, but if so, it is hard to see either the reason for the episode's inclusion in the Gospel of Mark or who else it could have been. Now, if it was Mark, then he himself was an eyewitness to the transactions in Gethsemane. Whether or not it's Mark, however, the imagery is striking, going back as far as Genesis 3. Like Adam and Eve, the disciples are metaphorically, and in this case, literally, hiding their naked shame in the garden. Right? Mark or this individual, this young man, is barely covering himself up. All it takes is one guy to reach out and grab his clothes and rip it off of him, right? He's got, like, fig leaf clothes on. That's, that's what they're saying here. Mark associates nakedness, which is an image of shame, with anyone who abandons Jesus, right? Here's a naked person running away, fleeing Jesus, and, and they are all naked who are fleeing Jesus because they are all, or should be, ashamed of themselves. They've been uncovered. Their, their moral standing, their, vali, right, their valiant character or not, has been revealed now. They are standing naked for all of us to see them and judge them. But there is a deeper meaning here. Okay? And this is, this is where this whole story and the inclusion of this suddenly makes sense. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Jewish Apocrypha and the writing of the Jewish historian Josephus, all in Greek, Okay, this Greek term that Mark uses for young man designates one who is exceptionally valiant, strong, faithful, and wise. The word that he uses for young man isn't just some young guy. It's a word that they use for somebody who is exceptionally valiant, exceptionally strong, exceptionally faithful, and exceptionally wise. Now, you see it even in what he does. I'm going to go back to my father for a moment because (coughs) when you're trying to break up a riot, when you're trying to break up people, they have the sticks and they just push everyone back. They're not interested in arresting anyone. They just want them to move. Now, anyone who stands their ground, they will take into custody. So all of the other disciples have fled, but there's one man valiant enough to, to stay when everyone else flees. Right? They haven't attempted to arrest anybody else but Jesus. And this man is so close to the kingdom of heaven, he almost, unlike everybody else, gets arrested too. The only reason they reach out to get him is because he hasn't fled when everyone else has fled. But... Once they put out their hands to take him like they did Jesus, he get, right. it's like Peter trying to walk on the water. He almost does it. And this man almost does it. But he, he flees. Right. So this valiant man, the last one standing besides Jesus, this one who's exceptionally wise and exceptionally strong, in the end, he runs away too. And he's so terrified that he'll do it without his clothes. Now this detail points to Amos chapter 2 verse 16 where the prophet describes a day of judgment so fierce, so terrible, so horrifying that he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked In that day declares the Lord. There will be a judgment that comes (laughs) that is so terrifying that the valiant will run away naked. That's why Mark included this in this story. There are no valiant men. There are no determined men. There are no strong men, no courageous men, no brave men except one. Right? And how desperately do our wives need us to be brave? How desperately do our wives want, need us to be strong? How desperately do we need to raise strong and fearsome boys in this age in which we live? But are there any, any fierce, strong, determined men amongst us? Uh, it's a sliding scale. It's a sliding scale. But what, what I'm going to point out here is this, right here. This is the moment where man steps up to the plate and dies for humanity or not. And where did everybody go? Right? I mean, <laughs> there's a home invader, and you've been practicing with your Glock for years, and okay, you're not, it doesn't take that much courage to pull that off. But here is Jesus in a garden being arrested by the temple authorities and he knows what's going to happen next and does he run away? Does he hide? Does he flee? There are moments when we men will stand but there is a limit to it. Right? There is a limit. Courage is the testing of our virtues and if you test every man's virtues what is eventually going to happen is they're going to become overloaded, short circuit and the person is going to run away. But Jesus fears nothing. Nothing not the false friend, not the, or fighting alone with his back against the wall, because if God is the only one on your side, then you are always in the majority, and you are always in the right. He prayed. He said, God, take this from me. Your will be done, not mine. So now that he's standing there alone, who does he know who is with him? He looks around. He doesn't see any men because he knew it would be that way. But who's with him? God the Father is. And if God the Father is with you, you are always in the majority and you are always in the right. Jesus doesn't fear men with swords or clubs. He doesn't fear Satan armed with death. He fears nothing but the Father. And the fear, that awe, that holy awe, that acknowledged weakness of flesh that seeks help from above, that is the source of Jesus' power. That is what makes him a valiant man. Remember, this is the God-man He didn't just come down from on high in all of his glory, and all of his power, and all of his might, and do the things that he did. He came as a weakling. He came like you and I, into the world. Jesus is looking outside of himself. He's looking beyond himself. He's looking to God, and it says this in Psalm 60, verse 11 through 12. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. God is valiant, and it is He who treads down the foe. Man couldn't, and man can't. In Mark chapter one, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus, and immediately did what? Right. God is valiant. God will destroy His His foes. Valiant people are determined. Valiant people are courageous. The Spirit of God, the valiant one, descends on Jesus, and what's the first thing that He does? Well, let's let's take this virtue out for a test drive, baby. The Spirit of God descends upon him, and does he fight all kinds of battles and come to Satan at the end? No. The Spirit of God descends upon him, and he says, bring me the toughest man you got. And it's immediate, right out in the garden. Bring me Satan. That is a valiant man. Not a man who has to do it in increments. Not a man who has to do it in little, little, how do you eat an elephant? Little bites. The Spirit of God is why Jesus is a valiant man. That is what makes him valiant. Now, do you want to be a valiant man? Do you want to be a valiant woman? Do you want to have valiant kids? Do you want to have a determined and courageous home in this dark age in which we live? Do you want it? Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self control. And what does it say in Titus chapter three? It says that he poured this spirit out on us abundantly, overflowingly. This spirit, this valiant spirit that is willing and determined to take on whatever it needs to, to obey God, courageous enough to overcome all enemies, that spirit has been poured out on you and on me. This is why the Lord himself, in Mark chapter 5, verse 36, this is why he says, do not fear, only believe. And all the people around him who are near him, why is it that they're always falling? Why is it they're always fleeing? Why is it that they don't get it? And yet, what happens on Pentecost? Peter, 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 Peter becomes a valiant man. Peter is going to go in he's going to go into the temple and he's going to tell them you know i'm going to keep preaching jesus christ and you can kill me right then his vow from way back i will die for you if i have to he can do it now because jesus died for him and the spirit of god has descended upon him now peter is a valiant man jesus framed his life by the scriptures now, many Bible stories recount how individuals acted on God's promises to gain victory in battle in the face of overwhelming human odds. Stories such as Jael in Judges 4, and Gideon in Judges 7, Jonathan and his armor-bearer in 1 Samuel 14, David and Goliath, King Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, the people of God, despite being outnumbered, take on the enemy with the belief that God's power is sufficient in what? Their weakness, not their strength. This is why Jesus does what he does, because he understands the God he serves, because he's read the stories. Paul especially employed the language of courage in warfare as a metaphor for his own ministry and the ministry of the church. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of whose might? His might. Jesus went to God in prayer, struggling with his circumstances and all of his weakness, seeking help from outside himself, from above, framing his story by the stories and promises of scripture to you. That's why you're not valiant. That's why. Because you're going out, you're going to work, you're looking across the room at your spouse, there's the kids calling from the other room and all you want to do is check Facebook because you are so tired and you're doing it on your own strength. Because you're in a garden all the time. Is it a garden of obedience or disobedience? Do you want to be valiant? It's not going to come from inside of you, it's going to come from outside of you. It's going to come from above. And ladies and gentlemen, it's already here. I just made a big mistake. Sorry, Charles Spurgeon. He is already here. Because the Holy Spirit is not an it, He's a He. Do you want to be valiant? Do you want valiant children? Do you want to have a courageous and determined home in this dark age in which we're living? Because I'm telling you right now, the culture needs it badly. But we're people who spend a lot of time with Jesus. Seeing right, We've seen salvation come to the people around us. We're, we're with him all the time. And we think that the proximity is going to be the thing that gets us over the hump. But being near him isn't enough. Having his spirit is what we need. And there's only one way to get that, and that's going to him. Now, you have it already. So half the work is already done. Now all you, <laughs> you got to do is every time you're tempted, right? Every time courage is the temptation of all your virtues. Every time your virtue, to stand strong. Every time your virtue, to be honest. Every time your virtue is to love the unlovely and to keep friending the people who don't deserve your friendship. Whenever those moments come, it's the Spirit of God who's going to get you through, not yourself. Do you want to be valiant? You're halfway there. You're halfway there. The Spirit of God has descended and dwells upon you. Turn through him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Get on your knees. Pray to God. Just like Jesus did. And, and when that hour comes. If you're walking by that spirit. You will find that when everyone else has run. You have not. And amen. Father we thank you so much for the spirit. Your spirit. That has descended upon us. And emboldened and, and, and strengthened us. Lord God we um, are surrounded by circumstances. That fill us with fear and anxiety. We are surrounded by weak false men. We ourselves, Lord God, the the enemy is here within the citadel of our own bodies, our own hearts, our own minds. We pray, God, that we would flee these things to Jesus Christ, because where he is, he is standing firm. He is at the right hand of the Father. If we cling to him and turn to him, we will find that nothing will shake us, nothing will move us, and nothing will separate us from the love of God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, and amen.